But we want to uh, continue in our series this morning. We're talking about living faithfully in a chaotic world. <laughs> living faithfully in a chaotic world. And, and we've been going through the, the book of 1 Corinthians, and we'll get back into that in two weeks, just in time for Valentine's Day, talking about love in 1 Corinthians 13. So praise the Lord that all worked out. But we've been in this series now for three weeks. This is our third week, and we'll have one more week as we finish this message next week. But um, the first week we talked about our mindset. How do we live faithfully in a chaotic world? Well, we have to have the right mindset. We have to have a mindset that stayed upon Christ. And we looked into uh, Philippians chapter 4, verses 4 to 13, and, and, and we understood that Paul told us, not just in that text, but in other texts, that we should take every thought captive. Every thought captive. That means you don't allow your thoughts to run wild. And what happens in the midst of chaos, people panic and people um, fear and, and, and their, all their emotions take over and your mind runs wild. And, and we're, we're, we're instructed as Christians to bring every thought into the captivity of the Holy Spirit and Christ. And so we looked at that the first week, two weeks ago. And then last week we looked at our provision, our provision. And so we wanted to make the, the clear understanding that as we looked at the Scriptures in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, just those two verses were so powerful that God is able, right, we don't serve a God who is crippled. We don't see a, serve a God who is unwilling or unable to help us. He is able and he is willing. And so he provides all that we need in Christ. And we talked about our sufficiency in Christ, that God is able to do beyond and above, beyond what we can even think or understand. And that's good to understand when we're in a bad situation, is it not, to realize that the God we serve is able to help us? And willing, and so he's not only our our mindset should be taken captive with Christ, but our provision is Christ. And we talked about the sufficiency as believers that we have in Christ and Christ alone. And today we're going to be looking at our protection, our protection, the promise of God's protection. I think most of us here today, probably most of us. Um, our occupations are not one that puts us in dangerous situations each and every day. Um, I mean, maybe there's some of you that have a weird job that does that, but most of us work in an office somewhere. We do something like that. And, and most people are content, I think, in their lives to keep it that way, you know, to keep danger at bay, to keep uh, dangerous things away. But there are some who are adventurous, um, I remember when my daughter turned 18, we lived down the desert, and I asked her, what do you want to do for your 18th birthday? She says, I want to jump out of an airplane. I said, what? Where did this come from? And uh, I thought, okay, I'm game. Let's see if she'll really do this. So we had a little airport there, Bermuda Dunes Airport in, in Palm Desert, and lined up a, a event, and... and uh, Mother was going to kill me. She wouldn't even come watch. It was so crazy. Uh, 
she says, if, if you don't bring my daughter home, don't come home, <laughs> is what she told me. Don't even bother. So uh, everything was on the line with this jump, right? And, and we went down, and, and I lined it up, paid for it, had her, her, had her jump videoed. And um, I never forget these Russian guys who took us up in this little, you know, uh, I think it was a 172 or whatever, the little Piper, you know, engine on this plane, a ratty old plane, and and, and um, they get in there, and they're, they're just, you know, even through the introductory to this jump, they're making all these jokes, and I'm like, boy, these guys don't seem too serious, you know, they're from Russia, you could barely understand them, it was, it was kind of interesting, you know, but we did it. I, most people probably wouldn't do that, you know, but we did it, it was kind of a little a bit adventurous, and done rock climbing and other things that are kind of adventurous, but most of us probably would be okay without venturing out in that, in that direction. Um, I'll never forget this story I read of these two brothers. And uh, bear season had just opened up, and uh, it was cold. And um, first day, it was crisp, crisp morning of bear season, and they were going to go hunting together. And, and John wanted to get up early and get out there and, and get his bear. And so he got up early and his brother James just wanted to sleep in the warmth of the bed. He said, I'll be out later, you know, don't bother me. So John went out, and um, soon he found a huge bear in the woods they were hunting. And so he took his gun, he shot at the bear, and he hit the bear, but it didn't kill the bear. It just made him really, really angry, you know. And so this enraged bear turned on John, and in the commotion, John was so panicked, he dropped his rifle and started running toward the cabin with this enraged bear quickly catching up. And as he approached the the cabin, I mean, he was quick, but the, the bear was right on his tail, literally. And the bear was ticked off. John approached the cabin and he tripped over a branch, fell basically down, and the bear tripped over John because he was right on his things, busted into the cabin door, and John gets up and he's standing there and he's thinking, okay, what do I do now? So what did he do? He reached over and he closed the cabin door. And he said, you skin this one, I'm going to go get another one (laughs) to his brother who was sleeping. That's a little dangerous for me. I don't know if I would go down that road. You know, most people don't want to put themselves in that kind of a situation. We don't want to keep or put ourselves in harm's way. But we also don't want to rely on something like a stick that's going to trip us up um, You know, that was just dumb luck on his part. And so we need the promise of God's protection. We need the promise of God's protection and what he offers because it's sure. It's not left up to luck. And so our text this morning is Psalm 131. And this is a familiar psalm for many of you. I'm sure you've read through it many times. You'll recognize some of the language that we read. And I I pray that it will be a benefit to you this morning. It will help calm the nerves, that it will help us realize that we are protected by God's 
supernatural power. And it describes one of the primary advantages of knowing God in this psalm. And one of those advantages is what? Is his protection. The psalm is about the security of the one who trusts in God. And the author of this psalm, he wants you, me, his readers, to know that because the Lord is his God, he makes it very clear, that he protects him. And that if the Lord is your God, guess what? He will protect you. And so the psalm is neatly divided. You can basically divide it in a couple of different ways, but we'll divide it in verses 1 to 8 and then 9 to 16. And after some introduction, we'll get into the psalm. But I want to ask you to stand in honor of God's word as we read through Psalm, six, or psalm 91, verses 1 to 16. And um, Psalm 91, beginning in verse 1, He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust, for he will deliver you from the snare of the fowler and from the deadly pestilence. He will cover you with his pinions or, or feathers, And under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness is a shield and a buckler. Verse 5. You will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day, nor the pestilence that stalks in the darkness, nor the destruction that wastes at noonday. A thousand may fall at your side, ten thousand at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes, and see the recompense of the wicked, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place, the Most High, who is my refuge. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague shall come near your tent, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread On the lion and the adder, the young lion and the serpent will trample, you will trample underfoot because he holds fast to me in love. I will deliver him, I will protect him because he knows my name. When he calls to me, I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will rescue him and honor him. With long life, I will satisfy him and show him my salvation. This is the word of the living God. Father, we ask today that you would allow us to see the protection and security in this psalm. That, Father, you would make clear to us that we are under your hand, that we are in that special place of abiding in you and thereby have your protection over us as your people. And, Father, if there's one thing that people in this world need is surety. They need protection. They need the assurance of your presence in their life. And Father, we thank you that you've made that possible through Christ. And so we just pray you bless our time now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Ask yourself this question this morning. What is the most 
secure location on earth? What is the most secure location on earth? If you had to go somewhere to be safe and be secure, where would you go? Um, What is that place where the thieves cannot break in and and you can be perfectly guarded, perfectly secure, perfectly protected? Well, this last week I looked it up. And Google has top top 10, five places, (laughs) most secure in the world. I'll just share a couple of them with you because I found some of them kind of amazing. Some of them we're familiar with. Um, Cheyenne Mountain, right? NORAD. Have you heard about that? The Command and Control Communication Intelligence Center for basically all the aerospace industry and the space missions and everything. All that is in, in Cheyenne Mountain. Have you heard of Haven Coa? This is interesting. I didn't know this even existed. It's a data protection company, and it's based six miles off the British coast in the North Sea. And only authorized staff investors and members of the royal family are permitted to access to this vault of data. Very secure place. Uh, There are places that are on this list that probably you might not want to go. Uh, places like the the ADX Florence Supermax prison, <laughs> right, in Colorado. I don't think you want to go there, but it's very, very secure, they tell us. I mean, I'm sure it's it's safe there, but that's not the kind of safety that I'm looking for, frankly. I can avoid that. They have electronic doors and cameras and audio equipment, and they, they say that a single guard can can move... Massive amounts of prisoners through this system just by pushing buttons. It's crazy. Another very secure place in the world, which is a little worse than the prison in my view, um, the Mormon church has a record storage facility at Granite Mountain in Utah. And what they do is it's it's the the... the the genealogical record storage facility for the Mormon church. And it's carved into the side of a mountain in Utah. And they have armed guards, metal detectors. It's a concrete bunker fortress. And, uh, you know, you can't really get near the place. All their data is stored there for the Mormon cult. Um, One that we heard about years ago when we were at war with uh, Iraq was Saddam Hussein's bunker. They said this truly was probably one of the most secure places in the world. Um, it, I read about it this past week because I thought, wait a minute, they, didn't they just pull him out of a hole? <laughs> well, you know, I don't know if he was in the bunker. I don't think that was the, the, the bunker. But um, the U.S. actually pelted that bunker several times with like bunker buster bombs and it did no good. Uh, uh, there was rooms under hundreds of feet under the, under the earth and rooms with 60 foot ceilings. It was assured that he would survive any kind of atomic bomb and that he could live down there for six months to a year with all the stuff they had stored. 
Just amazing, very secure place. Or more familiar things like Air Force One, right? The president's uh, aircraft is very secure. Everywhere they fly, they have two of them. Um, Whenever they land, we see them once in a while parked at uh, Hickam Air Force Base. When we go to visit the kids, when the president's over there, it'll be parked, and you think they'd park it in a hangar or something. No, they park it right out on the tarmac, and it's surrounded by people, (laughs) you know, pretty much. I mean, you, you can't get near it. Or another place on the list was Fort Knox, right? Uh, it boasts 24-ton doors. The doors are 24 tons. That's just crazy. Um, it's supposed to have 143 million ounces of gold there. Crazy, crazy amount of Crazy amount of cash. Um, now, you know about all these, and, you know, you, Area 51 is the other one, you know, where, where they have, well, we don't know what they have there, right? But it's Area 51, and it's very secure. You can't just march in there, right? You'll be arrested. Uh, the, the, the last one I want to share with you, and I thought this was just odd, it was a parking garage. One of the, then listen, we're not talking a secure parking garage. We're talking one of the most secure places in the world. It's a parking garage in Derby, England. It's called Bold Lane. Bold Lane. And it was, it was created by a frustrated engineer who had his car broken into several times. And this parking garage is like no other parking garage. It holds up to 400 cars. Each car has its own individual camera trained on it. When you park your car, you're parking on a, um, a, a sensor area that's kind of like if anybody tries to come near your car, the guards are notified. I mean, it's amazing. And it's pretty much full. People pay for this luxury. And uh, it's never been, they've never had a car that's been tampered with in any way. Um, and this was all the way back in the, started in the 1990s, the late 1990s. But whether it's the video camera, you involve, you know, the doorbell thing that you put in front of your house or the gated community in which you live, whatever it might be, um, maybe it's a different kind of security. Maybe it's a security of a stable family, a stable marriage or financial security that you're looking for. Maybe you understand that, you know what, all that that we're talking about is rather elusive That kind of security is elusive in a fallen world. It's it's tough to feel protected and secure today. And that protection and security is very hard to come by as far as the world is concerned. Well, Psalm 91 basically tells us the safest place in the world is not a bank vault. It's not the White House. It's not a parking garage in England. The safest place, the most secure place in the world, according to God's word, as we just read, is a place of those who are committed to trust in God. The perfect protection is found when a believer trusts in the God who keeps his people in his unbreakable care, who protects them from harm, who surrounds them, with inviolable promises and ensures that they are fully, completely, 
protected and secure. And Psalm 91 is a psalm that desires to show the people of God that they can have this kind of perfect security. That their protection is is an ultimate one. Far more safe than Fort Knox. Far more safe than the parking garage in England. Far more secure are those who trust in God. And that's what we want to look at this morning, at least begin this morning as we introduce this psalm. It's really an ancient psalm. It's, it's, it's something that's been used by God throughout history um, for his people to bring them to a deeper trust, a heightened sense of security, you might say. Uh, this is a psalm that occasionally soldiers find themselves reading when they're in combat. It's given comfort to them. Verse 11, for he will give his angels charge, right, concerning you, to guard you in all your ways. What a wonderful promise that is for a first responder or a soldier. In church history, this psalm was helpful to the great British preacher Charles Spurgeon. He had a ministry, not just of preaching, but he had a ministry to the sick and the dying. And it was very dear to his heart. And he treasured the words of Psalm 91. But Psalm 91 has not only been used by the people of God to remind themselves of God's protective care, but unfortunately it's also been twisted. It's also been used by the enemies of God, you could say. It was Satan himself, if you remember, right? Who quotes and draws from this psalm in the wilderness, temptation of Jesus. What does he do? He dares Jesus. Remember, he'd jump off the temple, prove yourself, prove you, you know, God will protect you. This is a very important, you could consider it a hymn, a hymn of security. The Psalms a lot of times were songs that were actually sung. And this is one that's crucial that we understand if we're going to be people who are aware of God's protection for us and of us. And of the security that, that our faith should bring us. At the same time, when you read through this psalm, it's as we have, it's it's not the easiest psalm to interpret. There's different voices speaking. If you notice that when we read through it, I don't know. The opening lines are composed in the first person. Do you see that? He who delivers in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge, my fortress, my God in whom I trust. But the middle section from three, basically down to 13 is written almost directly to the readers. And you can see the change right there between verses 2 and 3. He's saying, I will say to the Lord in verse 2. And then he says, for he will deliver you. And all of a sudden you see the word you cropping up. Every other word almost. So the pronoun you is prevalent there. It's as if he's speaking directly to the reader, the listener of the psalm. He's speaking to you. He's speaking to me. 
And then in the final section, 14, 15, and 16, you can see where the psalmist kind of, it's almost like God takes over. (laughs) And it's God speaking at that point. It seems like there's another voice altogether, and it must be someone who can promise the things that are promised, and it appears to be the voice of God himself. And so it's kind of complex in the way that the voices are used and things like that. Some commentators believe that some of this psalm was meant to be a kind of back and forth between the congregation and the preacher, or the priest and the people, or the king and his servants. The king would say part of it, and then kind of like a responsive reading that we do today occasionally. What's interesting is the author of this psalm is unknown. We don't know who wrote it. Some believe that it was David who wrote a lot of the psalms. And they believe that because maybe some of the language, uh, when he talks about trust, things like that, that's very common in Davidic psalms. But you know what? He doesn't put his name on it. It's anonymous. The Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament, by the way, ascribes it to David for some reason. They don't really tell us why. Other scholars say, no, we think Moses wrote it. And the reason they think Moses wrote it is because if you go back to Psalm 90, who wrote that? Moses. And it seems that it has some of the flavoring of the patriarchal titles for God and things like that in verse 1. But we, in, in the bottom, the, the argument is we, we just don't know. We don't know who wrote it. But I think that anonymity of the authorship actually increases its timelessness. It makes it even more practical for us to apply to our lives because its lack of authorship, you could say, reminds us that God himself wrote it, right? We just don't know who he used to write it. These are the words of God. They're inspired. Some people think that it seems, the language seems so ancient that um, it's from the days of the patriarchs, from Genesis and things like that. Other people have read through this psalm in a very, very literal sense to the point where They could say, well, you know what? It says here that a snake, the adder, won't harm you. So guess who picks up on that? The Pentecostalist movement. And they say, well, this is our verse. That's where they get it, the snake handlers and all that stuff. And then the occasion of Paul in the New Testament. Or where it says the young lion cannot pounce on you. They think it's some kind of Pentecostal psalm for for snake handling. Well, we don't believe that. Others have even said that, well, it must, this kind of protection can only, only assume that he's talking about the millennium. And so it's not for us today. It's, it's for some future time um, when Christ will be here on earth ruling and reigning with his people, when his people will be under tremendous protection. They'll have to be during that time. But I don't think we need to reserve it for some eschatological future. Its relevance is rather clear 
It doesn't have to be relegated to some age to come. It's, it's pretty clear we read through it. This psalm is for what? It's for people in trouble. <laughs> it's for people in trouble. It's for people who need to learn to trust. You see, when you're trapped and you're surrounded and you're persecuted and you're harassed, you could say when you're at the, what, the, the end of the rope, right? With the, you're, you're at the end of your rope. It seems like Psalm 91 is teaching us, showing us how to hold on. Don't give up. How to trust in God. Because it's God who always keeps his promises, the word tells us. Even when they fly in the face of our suffering and our experiences and our great losses, God is still at work. And so this psalm, you could say, is for saints and their troubles. It's, it's for those who know God and the issues they're dealing with in life. I bet you this morning you're dealing with some issues. If not personally, you're looking at the world, you're looking at the country, you're looking at a lot of things, and you're going, yeah, we, we definitely got some issues to deal with. This song intends to instill a, a, a robust, greater faith that knows God as its object. We don't put our faith and trust in man, do we? We put our faith and our trust in who? In God, in God alone. He's absolutely trustworthy. We can trust God because the Bible says he's worthy of our confidence because he provides ultimate security and he provides that perfect protection for those who abide in him. So, this morning, let's listen to the voices of praise, the choruses that really resound here in Psalm 91, and learn together how we can understand God's protection for us. In verses 1 to 2, we see really the promise of his protection, that it's exclusive. It says, He who dwells in the shelter of of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. I will say to the Lord, my refuge and my fortress, my God in whom I trust. You see all the, the, the personal, I, I, my. What is this? This is a testimony of whoever wrote this psalm. It's a testimony of trust. They're saying, look, if you're going to trust in anything, let me tell you, I've been trusting in God, and here's how it's worked out for me. He wants to set up a prelude, you might say, to this psalm with his own personal testimony of how faithful God has been to him and the kind of security that God provides for him. And then in verses 3 to 11, or 3 to 13, like I said, we see the, this is the, the major part of the psalm, the middle part. It's the longest part of the psalm. After bearing testimony of his own experience, I did this, and my refuge, my fortress, and whom I trust. All of a sudden, he you can imagine the, the author turning from him, his own experience to the people who's hearing about his experience and saying, now you, you need to trust in God. And so in verse 3, he says, for he will deliver you. 
Verse 4, he will cover you. Under his wings you will find refuge. Verse 5, you will not fear. Down to verse 7. A thousand may fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. You will only look with your eyes. Verse 9, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. No evil shall be allowed to befall you. No plague come near your tent. For he will command his angels concerning you, the psalmist says, to guard you in all your ways. Incredibly personal. On their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. You will tread on the lion and the adder and the young lion and the serpent. You will trample underfoot. So guess who he's talking to? He's talking to you. (laughs) He's talking to me. You don't have to be a theologian to figure that one out. And then at the end, verses 14 to 16, it's almost like God injects himself into this psalm himself. Gives his own oracle here. God does this occasionally in the psalms. He interrupts the psalmist and he begins to speak as God. So in verses 14 to 16... You see the promise of his protection, where God himself takes on the role of speaking and tells us about the things that we really need to hang on to, to the promises from the lips of God himself. Well, as we introduce this psalm, you have to ask yourself, who qualifies for God's protection? Who is the one who qualifies? Does everybody? Is just carte blanche? Everybody's protected by God? I don't think so. That's like saying, well, everybody goes to heaven. No. I mean, we may want everyone to go to heaven, but everyone's not going to go to heaven. The Bible says that there's only one way to heaven, right? And that's through the Lord Jesus Christ and his work on the cross. You don't get to make up your own path to heaven. And so we see here that God's protection is exclusive. Who qualifies? Look at verse 1. He who dwells in the shelter or the secret place of the Most High. And then in verse 9, it says, because you have made the Lord your dwelling place. So if you make the Most High your dwelling place, then you receive the benefits of his protection. If you don't, you will not be under the protection of God. It's the same way when it comes to our salvation, is it not? When you put your faith, your trust in Christ and in Christ alone, guess what? He gives you, he grants to you salvation through the work of his son. He gives you what you could not earn on your own because of his grace. He allows you to experience salvation not because of who you are, but because of what? Because of what Christ has done for you. Salvation is exclusive. 
It's exclusive to those who come to Christ and admit they need a Savior and are willing to turn from their sin and trust in his work on Calvary. And we see it's exclusive because he begins to use terms here for God. And I just want to, today we'll look at, at these, these terms. And the first one, he says, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, or some translations say in the secret place of the Most High. Elion is that Hebrew word there for most high. It's, it's a common Hebrew word. It's a biblical phrase that's one of the many, many names that is used for God. It's a general word for God. But it also attaches a characteristic of God to it. And it says most high. This is the place of the Most High God, which suggests that he's elevated, (laughs) that he's above all others, that he's out of harm's reach, that he's out of our reach. (laughs) This is, of course, it's not talking about a physical location. It's a figurative expression of of a person who knows God well enough to get close to him. So it's God most high. It's God above all gods. That's where you want to dwell. That's where you want to put down your roots. And then secondly here, he says, who um, most high will abide in the shadow of the what? Almighty, it says. That's the Hebrew word Shaddai. You know, we sing the song once in a while, El Shaddai, Right? What does that mean? It means he is the Almighty. It's used back in Genesis 17. It reminds us something about strength. It reminds us something about might. About God being able to accomplish what he sets out to do. And it signifies that, that El Shaddai, the Almighty, is all-powerful. Above all others. There's nothing that God cannot do as far as his strength is concerned. El Shaddai was thought of as the God who was at his most powerful when man was at his most vulnerable. (laughs) That's the kind of God we serve. And that really fits into the psalm here and in, in how he portrays God. So we have Elion, the Most High God, and then we have El Shaddai, God Almighty, All Powerful. And we talked a little bit about that last week, did we? Did we not? That He is able. That I mean, the God who, you know, slung the stars in the space, created everything we see around us with a word. Absolute power, dunamis, dynamite, just incredible amount of power. And yet, when we have something in our lives that maybe rub us the wrong way or a little trial or a little bump in the road, what do we do? We worry. And we fret. And we get anxious. What's the world coming to? 
Where's God? See, there's a lot of people that are asking that question. A lot of good, faith-filled, Bible-believing Christians, to be honest with you. If I be real frank, not to get political in any way, but with this last election, there's a lot of Christians that put their faith in a movement, in a man. I said months before the election, the president lost this election, it would be because God wanted him to lose it. It was God's purpose. It was God's plan. Because the Bible clearly says that he raises our leaders up and he brings them down. There's a lot of Christians today walking around with their heads down going, oh man, what's going to happen? And there is cause for concern. I think it was John MacArthur a couple of weeks ago, he said, when you put your hand on God's word and you swear allegiance and then you go out and you do things through your policies that God would consider abominable, funding the murder of unborn children and all these other things, giving allegiance to false religions, I mean, whatever it might be. He said, you better be careful. And I think that's true. God is all-powerful. And he knows what he's doing. <laughs> to me, it's, I mean, once you get over the shock, it's kind of exciting. It's like, what, what's God going to do? I mean, it can get real bad real quick. Yes, even in these United States of America. <laughs> I mean, we're headed toward a one-world government anyway. I mean, that's what the Bible indicates. But see, we have to step back and we have to wait. Where's our trust? Where's our faith? I'm not saying we don't get involved politically. I think we need to be involved politically and do the right thing and stand up for biblical principles. And, but on the other hand, that's not the end of it. God is an almighty God. He is all-powerful. Surely, he will use this time in our country for his glory somehow. So we need to remind ourselves of that. God is most high. He's the almighty. But then he also says down there in verse 2, I will say to the Lord, the Lord, it's God's covenant name that he revealed to his people, Yahweh, right? The God who declares his self Existence, the God who ha says basically what? I am that I am. <laughs> I don't need to explain myself to you. I just am. And this is his personal name because Israel was to use it when they were his personal people. Yahweh. The God who is. Doesn't owe anybody an explanation. Never had a beginning, will never have an end. He's eternal. He's the Lord. But then when you look at the end of verse 2, he uses a fourth term here in the original language. He comes down and he says, my refuge and my fortress. And then he says this, my God in whom I trust. 
Elohim, the most basic word description of God. But what makes it so special here is that he says, my God. He's my God. This is why he's, he's introducing this psalm and he's saying, look, I'm not about to write to you about God's protection. These aren't stuff I'm just getting out of a book. He's saying, these are things that I lived. These are very real things that happened to me as an individual, he's saying. It's his personal testimony because he says, it's my God, this great Elion, this most high, El Shaddai, almighty, Yahweh, Lord, he's my God. He begins with his understanding of who God is because it's personal to him. See, that's, that's what's so important about when we share our faith that it, it comes from our heart, it comes from our life, it comes from our experience of knowing what God has done and can do and will do in and through us. If you're out trying to witness to people and, and you don't have any experience with God, you don't have any experience with God's protection, you don't have any experience with God's salvation, you don't have any experience personally with anything concerning God, it's going to be hard for you to go out and to share a testimony of nothing with someone that would give them a desire to come and follow your God too. But here it's personal. And that's why he says there, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High, who finds his lodging where? In the shadow of El Shaddai. Uses Yahweh, my refuge, my refuge, my stronghold. He says he calls him my God in whom I ever trust. It's a personal testimony of trust, intimate testimony of God's value and his closeness and his protectiveness from this author. Now, there's, you say, well, that's subjective. Well, of course it's subjective. That's the point. It's a personal testimony. But you can't be dismissive of that just because it's subjective. It's personal. It's real. It's like when someone comes to you and says, man, God has changed my heart. He has forgiven me of my sin. I am a changed individual. I mean, you can say all day long, well, I don't believe it. Who cares? Sit back and watch. And on the other side of that, it's very dangerous when someone makes a profession of faith in Christ. Right? You talk to someone and, and, and they seem open to the gospel and, yeah, I want to I accept Jesus. I want to come to Christ. Okay. Here, just say this little prayer. Jesus, I know I've sinned and thank you for your sacrifice on, on Calvary and please come into my life and, and forgive me of my sins. Amen. I've been in situations where people have led people in that kind of prayer, to be honest with you, when I was a youth pastor, I led kids in that kind of a prayer because I didn't know any better. 
You know, it's the first thing I did after we said amen at the end of that prayer. What I do is I, welcome to the family, brother. Now you're a Christian. Now I'm a little more mature and I look back and go, what, on what basis could I make that claim? Because they followed me in a prayer? Because they were at a youth meeting where there was 50 other kids that probably prayed that prayer? And they didn't want to be left out, so oh, yeah, I'll pray the, pray the prayer too. Okay. Does a prayer save you? Is that what saves us, a prayer? No, I don't think so. What saves us is Christ. What saves us is the work of the cross. Not our ability to pray a nice little sweet prayer. And I'm sorry to tell you this, but our churches are full of people who've done just that. They've walked an aisle, they've raised a hand, they've prayed a prayer, and they think, well, that did it. I'm a Christian now. And if you were to ask them, well, how has Christ changed your life? At best, some of them would say, well, you know what? I go to church now. That's it. Do you have a desire to read the word? Do you have a desire to pray? Do you have a desire to fellowship with the saints? That's, to be honest with you, what blew me away with this whole pandemic thing. When the government said, you can't meet for church. I mean, we don't want to be stupid about it, right? The virus is a real thing. We want to be careful. We want to be cautious. But at the same time, wait a minute. Something wasn't adding up. (laughs) And so when we started to meet, I just remember thinking, well, I'm just going to, we're just going to trust the Lord that he'll protect us as we gather together. I was amazed at how many churches just folded I'm still amazed at how many churches are closed. I'm amazed how many don't see themselves opening back up till maybe the end of 2021, 2022, maybe. And then even if we do gather together, as the church, you know, we can't, we could never sing. God forbid we would sing. I mean, that would be a super spreader event. Goodness gracious. Really? I mean, where's your faith? Where's your trust? Once again, if you're sick, stay home. I don't want the virus. I don't want you to give the virus to anybody if that's what you got. It's a time for caution. Time to wash your hands and go into a store, wear your mask, whatever you want to do. But if that's all you're trusting in, my friend, you don't have any protection. See, we're called to trust in God and God alone. His protection is exclusive to those who put their faith, their trust in him. It's grounded in the objective reality of who God is and how he has revealed himself to be. See, this isn't the psalmist just sitting down thinking, well, you know what? This is who God is to me, let me tell you. That's not what he's doing. It's the psalmist saying, 
this song writer, this one who wrote, penned Psalm 91, he's saying, you know what? Who, by the way, was inspired by God to do so. He's saying, this is who my God is. (laughs) This is who God himself has revealed himself to be. And this is why I've come to trust in him. Solely, exclusively. See, before he gets into the meat of this psalm, where he's going to basically tell us how God has protected him and all this, before he gets into the sermon, he says, I just want you to know that I've lived this. This isn't something I just made up. This God is very real, and you can, you you should put your faith, your trust in him. This is a God who's been his, his fortress. This is a God who's been his stronghold. This is this God who has provided a profound experience and impact in his own life. And so before he tells us, before he tells you to trust in this God, he, he wants us to know, I've done it. I've trusted in this God. See, it'd be one thing for him just to give us a bunch of dry facts about who God is and how God can be helpful. It's a whole other level when you appropriate those facts and you begin to experience things to be true about God in your life. That's what he calls us to. He's telling us that God is showing himself and that it's this is tested. It's true. It's tried. And he's found this God that he's put his faith, his trust in. I mean, he can't even describe it, really. He has to use metaphors. It's so overwhelming. So he gives a couple metaphors here. How does the psalmist describe this place where you're under the protection of God. Well, first of all, he, he calls it a shelter right there in verse 1. He says, he who dwells in the shelter or the secret place, some translations say, of the Most High. What does this mean? This, this is where you make your home. A shelter is, is a, a place to hide from danger, Right? I mean, sometimes you watch those survival shows, right? You know, and poor couple was out in the wilderness and they got lost in the snow. And what they have to do? They had to find themselves shelter. That's very important when you're in danger. It's just a place to hide from danger. That's what the shelter, that's a common word throughout the Old Testament. You see it used over and over again in the Psalms where David is writing and he's got you know, to duck and run because people are chasing him, right? He's looking for shelter. He's hiding from soldiers who are pursuing him maybe. That's what a shelter is. And the, the psalmist sees this most high God as a place to hide from danger. Secondly, he uses the word Shadow there in verse 1. It will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He sees his home, or the place where he lodges at, 
in the shadow of El Shaddai. See, this kind of helps us understand why the shelter and the shadow mean so much to the psalmist. When he uses the word dwell there in verse 1, it, it basically means that's where you set up shop. That's where your home is. Tonight when you leave, or today when you leave here, eventually you'll probably go to a place called your home, unless you're homeless. But most of us probably have a home to go to. It's the word dwell. It's a familiar kind of word. Word. It's where your family lives. It's where you sleep at night. And see, the, the psalmist here is portraying the protection of the shelter, the hiding place of God, as his go-to place, as his true and lasting home. His family abode, you might say. <clears throat> But then he switches it up here. Verse 1 says, you find his lodging, his shelter. But then it says, will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. When he's talking about a home, he's talking about a permanent dwelling place. But then he talks about a place where you probably just have an overnight stay. It's a place where you would be there temporarily. Maybe an alien or a sojourner, as the word calls us so many times as we're passing through this life. That's such an important truth, is it not? That this world is not our home. Right? We're just passing through. And so he uses both of these words. He uses the word shelter and the word shadow. And I think it's, it's a recognition of the grace of God, really. I mean, you say, well, how so? Well, he says that he lives in the presence of God, not because he's natively a family member, that's not the reason, but because he's been welcomed there as an outsider who's been brought into the family. And in this family, he's saying he found shelter and he found shadow. Oftentimes in the Psalms, you see words that, you know, God has wings or feathers, things like that. It's it's descriptive language. doesn't mean he literally has wings. What he's pointing out here is you're under the shadow of his wings. What's that mean? It means that you're close enough to this almighty, all-powerful God that you're able to be under his shade, under his protection, that you're able to be reached by him, that you are protected by this almighty shelter shadow. That'll help you sleep at night, I hope. But he doesn't stop there. He says quickly, he says, my refuge. Look at the third metaphor in verse 2. He says, it's my refuge. See, we have to be reminded that this is something that is used throughout the Psalms. It's one of the favorite ways 
for God's people to sing about God, my refuge. Psalm 2.12, how blessed are those who take refuge in him. Psalm 5.11, those, let all those who take refuge in you rejoice. Psalm 7.10, Lord my God, in you do I take refuge. Psalm 16, Psalm 18, Psalm 61, over and over again. Psalm 62, my God, my salvation, my glory, my rest, the rock of my strength, my refuge is in God. And so the psalmist agrees God is a secure place. Not only that, but lastly here, that he's a stronghold. He says, my stronghold. I mean, he's basically telling us, this God I put my trust in, he is a fortress. He is an impenetrable defense. A stronghold back then was known as a walled city. It was a place of military strength and might. And that's how the psalmist sees God. And he's saying there in verse 2, he's saying, I'm saying of Yahweh that this is repeated testimony over and over again. He who dwells in God's presence is protected by a shelter and is under the shadow of the most high God and the almighty God. He didn't trust him just once. This is an ongoing, repeated, characteristic trust. In other words, he's proven God to be faithful to him. So this is the opening testimony of trust. And God is asking us. He's asking you. He's asking me. It doesn't matter what's happening in this world. You, you keep your faith, your trust. You keep your eyes focused on me. I will protect you, no matter what. Doesn't mean it's going to be a bed of roses. You notice he he protects us through troubles as well. Through problems, through trials. He's there with us. He doesn't leave us. I would ask you this morning, can you say that you have put your faith, your trust in this God, this almighty God who cares for you. Can you call him your refuge, your stronghold? I think it's a, a good place to end, but it's also a good place to start. Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord, that this psalm will show us as we continue next week your divine protection of your people, of those who put their faith, their trust in you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to move beyond all the circumstances surrounding our own lives, whether it's in our families, our marriages, our jobs, political landscape, what's happening in our country and in the world through this pandemic. All those things are troubling, no doubt. But Father, we, we are under your protection as your people, as those who have cried out to you and asked you to save our soul from our sin. If you haven't done that yet, that's just a prayer away. You can cry out to the Lord this morning even. Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. When that prayer is representative of your heart, that maybe you've come to the end of your rope and you need to cry out to a, a high and holy God, Lord, I thought I knew you, but maybe, maybe I don't. 
I want, to, I want this to be real. I want my faith to be more than just a come to church, go to prayer meeting kind of event. I, I want you to transform me into the person that you desire me to be. And I want to know beyond a, any reasonable doubt that my sins have been forgiven and that I'm guaranteed a place in glory with you. Not based upon who I am, but based upon who I put my faith and trust in, your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we ask that you would just uh, bless our time of fellowship across the way, bless the food to our bodies. And Father, we pray this morning that you would just um, continue to lead us and guide us throughout this next week. Help us to be good representatives of you and of your truth. We thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.